This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Westminster Standards are a collection of churchly documents, a confession of faith, and two catechisms drafted by an assembly of pastors and theologians convened by Parliament to provide a confession and catechisms that would unify England, divided by civil war and deep religious differences, with Scotland. The standards were adopted by American Presbyterians in the early 18th century and continue to serve as the confessional standards for confessional Presbyterian denominations across the globe. John Fesco has published a new volume, The Theology of the Westminster Standards. He's academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of several other books, and they're all available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here. First of all, before we dive into the book itself, orient us a little bit to this collection of documents that we're calling the Westminster Standards. Now, when we say Westminster, we're not saying that Westminster Seminary wrote these. Right but that the seminary is named in honor of them, right? Correct. In uh, 17th century England, there was a conflict between the king, Charles I, and Parliament that eventually created a rift where Charles and a number of uh, members of Parliament, or MPs, walked out that were loyal to him. And the remaining body decided we need to not only uh, reform the government, but in more particular, we need to reform the churches in England, Ireland, and Scotland. And so what they did is they said, let's gather a group of theologians and pastors together and commission them at first to revise the 39 articles of the Church of England. And so they did that for a little while, but then they soon realized that, no, you know what we need? We need a fresh confession of faith, but not only a confession of faith, but also a series of catechisms uh, so that we can inculcate the people of the churches in England, Scotland, and Ireland in this new confession of faith. And so they met at Westminster Abbey, conducting many of their sessions in the Jerusalem chamber there in Westminster Abbey. And so they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and published that sometime around 1646, 1647. And then they also drafted the Larger Catechism, which is an extensive question and answer format of expanding upon and explaining the doctrine that is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then they also wrote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which has shorter question and answers, and it was originally intended for the instruction of children and new converts to the faith, laymen basically, who are maybe not understanding things as well. And so those three documents together comprise the Westminster Standards. For a long time, children actually memorized the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism. They sure did, which, you know, maybe that says something that we should turn off our TVs and and have our children spend some more time memorizing these important documents. But yeah, they were intended to teach children as well as the church the basics of the faith, and they're certainly excellent. The Shorter Catechism is an excellent document for doing precisely just that. What is the chief end of man. To glorify God and enjoy him forever, as hopefully children across the ages have answered that question and many more will continue to learn it and embrace it. And some children still do, right? For example, I think in the New Horizons, which is the denominational magazine of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they will occasionally publish the names of children who have memorized the entire Shorter Catechism. Right. Yes, absolutely. What would be the benefit of doing something like that besides keeping them busy and (laughs) out of trouble? 
Right. Uh, I think that it orients them to the basics of the Christian faith, you know, giving simple definitions for what is justification, what is sanctification, what does the law of God teach, what do the scriptures principally teach, who is God, who is Christ, you know, what is the church, all of these basic things that children undoubtedly encounter as they sit in church, as they participate in the life of the church, but apart from formal instruction, might not know what these things are. And it gives them a number of terms, if you will, and definitions upon which they can and hang their hats so that when they hear these things spoken of in the church or from sermons or they read portions of scripture, they have the framework in which they can understand and learn more and grow in their spiritual walk. So it gives them the vocabulary of right. the Christian faith and the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Sayers, you know, distinguishes three phases or stages of learning, parrot, pert, and poet. And some people are recovering those categories and finding them uh, very useful. When the catechism was written, and written with the assumption that young people would memorize it, when I say catechism, I mean the shorter catechism, we send our children to school or we educate them at home. In some way, we make sure that our children are educated. For example, we don't hesitate to expect them demand that they memorize, for example, multiplication tables. But somehow, when it comes to memorizing the vocabulary of the church and the church's authorized interpretation of Holy Scripture, we balk and we say, well, that will turn kids off to the faith. Pastor, you've had this discussion with parents. Help us through that. Sure. I think that perhaps it comes from a mentality that the Christian faith is something to be experienced rather than studied. You know, I'm not sure if it's a precise barometer of the spirituality of the church, but back in the 80s, the early 80s, J.I. Packer wrote a book entitled Knowing God, and then subsequently to that around uh, sometime in the early to mid-90s, Henry Blackaby, Baptist theologian, wrote a book called Experiencing God. And while I'm not going to blanketly write off one book just because of its title. I certainly think it's evidence that there's a big drift. And that's not to say that previous generations have been immune to this. I mean, we've certainly had mystical pietists, for example, that would say, yeah, that the Christian faith is to be experienced rather than studied. But, you know, we would say that there's certainly an experiential side of the Christian faith, but that it has to be informed with a solid understanding of the scriptures. You know, to use an illustration, if a man shows up to the door of a house holding roses as the woman opens the door and she has no idea who he is, she might not be interested or she might even be concerned as who is this strange man. She might call the police. Yeah, she might call the police. But if she knows, she has knowledge that this man is her husband and that it is their 10th wedding anniversary and that roses are an expression of his love for her, that knowledge changes and informs her experience so that it becomes richer and deeper. And I think that's the case with studying doctrine, studying the basic categories of the scriptures as the church has defined them so that we understand what the Bible is saying. Uh, We would read, for example, in Romans 4 that justification, you know, Paul talks about it. Well, what is justification? Is it my effort to somehow curry God's favor with my works? Or is it an act of God by his uh, free grace where he does impute the uh, righteousness and obedience of Christ to us by faith alone? That makes a huge difference in our experience. Am I on the treadmill constantly trying to please God, hoping that I won't be thrown out of the kingdom? Or has Christ himself merited the favor of God on my behalf so that I can 
can rest in his work alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Question 35 of the Shorter Catechism asks, what is sanctification? We've been having a significant and intense discussion over the last few years over what is sanctification? And here, question 35, answer 35, gives us, I think, a wonderful account. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Right. I should tell the listener that you and I are both looking at our phones using a free app that's available for the iPhone and other platforms as well, uh, Christian Creeds and Reformed Confessions. It's free and it's on iTunes and in other app stores as well. I use this all the time. Students laugh when I break out my phone in class to look up something on one of the catechisms. It works. Yeah, get the app, download it. All right, so you've written this volume on all three of these documents. We've talked a little bit about the shorter catechism mm -hmm. and a little bit about the confession. What's the larger catechism? Who's supposed to use it? And help us understand how it relates to the other two documents. Sure. I think that the larger catechism obviously is presented in a question and answer format and where you might have to say, let me compare the chapter on justification and then the chapter on sanctification in the confession of faith so that I can see where the similarities lie and where the differences lie between these two doctrines. The larger catechism, for example, has a question that says, wherein doth uh, justification and sanctification differ? And it answers those types of questions. It also goes into a very, very detailed exposition of the law, the law of God, in terms of what does a commandment state, what does it teach, what does it forbid, uh, what does it require, and there's a pattern there that you see. And I think at first glance, for example, with the larger catechism, people read it and they feel like they're being overwhelmed good grief, I can't believe that I have to do all of these things or not do all of these things. But this is where we have to recognize that the catechism, as you said in your question, is, you know, who was supposed to use it? In that particular setting in 17th century England, it was supposed to be used among other people by parliament, because at that time, cases of excommunication could be appealed to parliament. Now, we're obviously in a very different setting today in that, you know, nobody would rightly appeal to the civil government in a case of excommunication excommunication, but they could appeal to it. So Parliament wanted a list of sins or ways that the various commandments could be broken so that they would know, is this a legitimate appeal or is this an illegitimate appeal? Should we uphold it or should we uh, overturn it? And so that, I think, is one of the reasons as to why it explains the great length and detail that the Westminster Divines go into with their exposition of the law. Anyone who wanted a deeper, more thorough and complete explanation or study guide, right. if you're teaching Sunday school or if you're just doing your own sure. study, if you're a ruling elder, and certainly if you're a minister, you yeah. want to be making mm -hmm. use of the larger catechism. Absolutely. You mentioned question 77 of the larger catechism, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? And again, in view of some of the discussions mm -hmm. we've been having, it might be useful if the listener heard the answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ in sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation, 
The other is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. That's a brilliant account of both justification and sanctification that does justice Mm -hmm. in a relatively short space to both of them. Yeah, no. I think that that's one of the things that is perhaps, I think maybe, in my estimation, underappreciated by many in the Church today, is that certainly the Westminster Divines had feet of clay, as we all do, but the precision, the concise nature of their statements, the accuracy, and even the pastoral care that they invest into each one of these answers or statements in the Confession, I don't want to say, I run the risk of exaggerating if I say are unparalleled, but they're certainly exemplary, and they're quite beneficial if uh, carefully studied. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to John Fesco about his new book, The Theology of the Westminster Standards. And when we come back after this break, I've got a question for you, John, and that is, there are a lot of books about the Westminster Confession. There are books on the larger catechism, shorter catechism. So why on earth did you write yet another one? And you can give us the answer right after this. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. So why another book on the Westminster Standards? That's an important question, and I thought about that myself when I was first thinking about writing the book, but I think that the benefit of what most of the books that I've read about the Westminster Confession of Faith or the larger, shorter catechisms is that they do a decent job explaining the doctrines that occur Uh, within uh, the standards. And there are many books, say, for example, G.I. Williamson's book on the Confession of Faith, that can be a helpful introductory guide for new Christians or new Reformed folks as they're trying to learn the basics of these documents. But one of the things that I found that very few books address is the context, the historical context in which these documents unfolded. Not only that, but there was also a tendency in some of these contemporary books that they would take a statement from the standards and immediately highlight all the way into the 20th century and engage in BART or somebody like that. And as important as it is to engage BART's, say, doctrine of Scripture and its deficiencies, I wanted to say, wait a minute, let's back up the train and let's first talk about what was going on in the 17th century. The better that we understand these documents in their historical setting, the more useful they can be in the present day. Which, by the way, is a really good way of reading not just the standards, Mm -hmm. but Scripture Yes. And other documents as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's not an absolute rule, but I almost drew a line in the sand that ended with the 17th, uh, 17th century or the 1699, so to speak. And I almost refused to look at anything beyond that because what I wanted to do is I wanted to illuminate the standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith chiefly, and then, uh, you know, with help from the catechisms. I wanted to illustrate the doctrines from works from the period itself, either from the Westminster divines themselves or from other works of the period. There's a uh, dark ages that I talk about in that 
it's roughly from Calvin's death until the assembly, and that I've seen a number of people do this where they will find a doctrine in the standards, they'll go to Calvin and say, here's the doctrine here, they'll hopscotch to the standards, and then hop into the 20th century, the 21st century. And in one sense, you can make accurate observations about what's going on, but there is, I'm horrible at math, but there's roughly 75 years or so from the time of Calvin's death until the Westminster Assembly, and then obviously a couple hundred years in between the Assembly and present day. And there's a lot of theological water under the bridge. People might be surprised at this, but Calvin was not the most frequently cited theologian at the Assembly. He had, if memory serves correct, 25 citations in the minutes of the assembly. Beza had 27. So Beza was more cited, but there are some 600 names cited both positively and negatively in the minutes of the assembly that goes to tell us that conversation was much larger than simply Calvin. And so that's what I try to do is just illustrate these documents from these works of the period. And that, I believe, large in part sets this book out from most of the others that you see these days. We have resources now for reading the standards that even 10 years ago yeah. didn't exist. Yeah. And that's thanks to the wonderful work mm-hmm. of Chad Van Dixhorn. Yes, I think before, I remember when I was working on my doctoral dissertation, uh, I was working on some aspects of the assembly's work, and my supervisor said, you need to contact David Wright uh, down at Edinburgh to find out if in the unpublished minutes of the assembly, whether or not, you know, your subject election is discussed. Because up until about 10 years ago or so, all we had was the uh, Mitchell and Struthers shortened or, you know, abbreviated version of the minutes, which is immensely helpful but it's incomplete. And so with, you know, first with his dissertation version of the minutes, it was a doctoral dissertation with six volumes of appendices, perhaps the biggest I've ever seen. (laughs) I don't know if there's anything any bigger. And now that since they've been published by Oxford University Press, you can really get a fantastic window into the inner workings of the assembly, who they were citing, who they were quoting, uh, the discussions that they had about the various doctrines, critics, and what have you, even the curious case of an Islamic individual writing a letter to the assembly And for whatever reasons, the assembly decided to ignore the letter. It was mysterious, and I have no idea what was going on there. But uh, you get interesting facts like that. But if I can also add, too, that as little as 10 years ago or so, you would have to travel to all sorts of libraries around the world to get access to many of the works of the Westminster Divines and the works that they cite. But now you can download them most of the time for free from either uh, Early English Books Online, which is typically a a service that you can access through a seminary. Uh, Another resource is the Post-Reformation Digital Library, which I forget how many titles they presently have, but it's something in excess of 30,000 volumes now that you can download in PDF. And they're adding daily, so whatever you just said is now wrong. Right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) And there are lots of other uh, online databases as well. And we have a subscription database that we use here, to which we have access through our library, and to which our students and alumni also have access. Tell us a little bit about the Assembly. When did it meet? And what were some of the issues with which the Assembly was faced? Sure. The Assembly began around 1643 and met roughly until about 1652, so close to 10 years. And they spent the bulk of that time writing the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, and the the larger and shorter catechisms. And there were a host of issues that the Assembly faced as they were meeting during a period of civil war when Charles I had been run off and his 
his armies were fighting the uh, armies of Parliament as well as the Scottish armies in a battle vying for who would rule 17th century England. And, and who would be the state church. Right, exactly. Who would be the state church. You know, I think that in many ways the assembly, one of the factors that caused it its formation was that Charles with Archbishop Laud, famous latitudinarian, somebody who was, you know, comfortable with instituting Arminian doctrine as well as Church of England worship practices, which according to a number of Westminster divines said violated scriptural teaching on what was permissible and impermissible in worship. He tried to implement worship, for example, upon the Scottish churches, and that sparked a revolt. They said, no, you don't have the authority to institute worship. That's something that only God through scripture and through his church can do. So that was one of the factors, one of the issues they dealt with was worship. There were also brewing during this period controversies over justification. You had the teaching of Jacob Arminius that was floating around at the time, as well as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this was a hot topic, so to speak, on the front burner for many in the assembly. But you also had antinomian controversies. That was a big problem in 17th century England. I didn't include it in the book, but there was a passage I remember reading from John Coffey's book on Samuel Rutherford. And he said that uh, when Samuel Rutherford descended out of the highlands into London. He didn't use this analogy, but it must be like somebody from the backwoods of Arkansas descending into Las Vegas because it was just such a hotbed of all sorts of theological aberrant uh, doctrines and teachings. I think a lot of people don't realize how many different antinomian sects there were scattered throughout London. And in fact, a number of books were complained about uh, to the Westminster Assembly, most notably John Eaton's The Honeycomb of Free Justification in Christ, as well as uh, Tobias Crisp's uh, Christ Alone Exalted. So they were really concerned, and there was a statement that was made in the minutes of the Assembly that they were worried that millions of souls, quote-unquote, would be led astray in London and the surrounding area into uh, lawlessness. And so those were some of just a sampling of some of the issues that they faced. And of course, they had a huge debate about church government, That's right? right? Yes. Absolutely. They debated church government, and I didn't talk about that so much in the book. There's another fine book written on that subject, an older book called, I believe, The Assembly of the Lord. Yeah, Robert Paul. Yeah, by Robert Paul. And so I thought, well, I don't need to reinvent that wheel. But that was certainly one of the issues of contention because there were a number of independent divines, for example, Thomas Goodwin, who wanted to see independent church polity established. But the majority of the divines wanted to see the establishment of Presbyterian church government throughout England. And that was certainly the desire of the, the Scottish advisors to the assembly. They wanted to see Presbyterianism all throughout England as well. One of the documents that we haven't discussed much yet in this episode is the confession itself, and that's the most famous, mm -hmm. perhaps, of the three, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Why are confessions important, and, and how are confessions different from catechisms? Yeah, confessions of faith are important documents because they state the church's basic beliefs about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So that's important for a number of reasons. First of all, they state, what does the church believe? What do we affirm about the system of doctrine that is contained in the scriptures? But secondly, a confession of faith is important because it accounts for what the church does not believe or what errors does the church reject. And that is equally important in that you have to define what you believe, but also 
you inevitably blocks out what it is that you do not believe. And so in that sense, it serves an important function, not only guarding the truth, but also proclaiming or heralding the truth. But it does so in a way that I think a lot of folks are unfamiliar with these days. I think that we look at the confession of faith in certain respects as a line and that you have to toe the line. And if you don't toe that particular line, then you're out of bounds. And don't misunderstand me. There are many sections of the Confession of Faith, for example, that are very explicit, drawn with razor-sharp distinctions that you have to toe the line, say, for example, on justification or sanctification. But there are other portions of the standards that are written in what I like to call brilliant ambiguity, in that there were areas of doctrine where they didn't agree. One, for example, is that it says there in the Confession of Faith that Adam could receive life through his obedience uh, to the covenant of works. And the divine specifically left off the phrase eternal life because there was a disagreement among them as to whether Adam would have received life indefinitely in the garden or whether it was heaven itself was the reward. And since they disagreed, they couldn't come to an agreement. They said, why don't we just scratch out that word eternal and we'll just say life and that's a statement that we can all agree to. And so there are a number of places in this Westminster Confession of Faith or in the catechisms that will say things like that. And because we're unfamiliar with the debates, we don't realize, oh, that's an accommodation to a number of different views. There were disagreements about the imputation of Christ's active obedience. And so the standards, and particularly the confession, was a consensus document in certain respects. Mm-hmm. And and yet, there was also consensus, as you suggested earlier, on things like the covenant of works. The standards use that language, and they use equivalent phrases as well, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And yet, in our day, it's widely accepted that, well, nobody really has to believe mm-hmm. in the covenant of works. And yet, it's used expressly and repeatedly in the Westminster Confession, for example. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I think that you see that broad agreement about a number of points that in the church today, you know, we sadly don't find agreement. But say, for example, with the active obedience of Christ, that was certainly a subject of dispute, and you can read about that in the minutes, as well as in other works that publish a few of the speeches that were given. But this is one of the things that I hope to add to the conversation with that respect, is that rather than using a contemporary edition of the standards, I used a a PDF of the original document that was published by Parliament, so that when the confession came out, it has, I used all of the strange spellings and and odd punctuation. And one of the things I point out is that for some reason, a comma was dropped out of the original printing of the confession when it talks about the imputation or the obedience and satisfaction of Christ, so that it talks about the obedience, comma, and satisfaction to distinguish that there are likely two different things being talked about here, meaning the active and passive obedience. But another element related to that, and this is something that hopefully will be a positive contribution, is that I ask the question, does obedience and satisfaction mean anything less than the active and passive obedience of Christ in works from the period. And I provide citations of works before the assembly that use obedience and satisfaction as indicating the active and passive obedience of Christ, works after the assembly that use the phrase in the same way to show that this is not a suspect phrase and that in its 17th century context, that's the phrase that they use to denote the active and passive obedience of Christ. So that's one of the things that I hope to do throughout the book is by embedding the confession in its original 17th century context, it hopefully opens up a few other windows that we might not have been able to look through in the past. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the other areas of consensus is the approach to worship. 
despite the fact that you had Anglicans, mm -hmm. that is, people who held to an Episcopal form of government, mm -hmm. you had Congregationalists mm -hmm. who held to the antithesis of Episcopal government, mm -hmm. and then you had Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. so you had a range of polities and uh, disagreements on issues. Nevertheless, before they ever completed their work on the confession, they drafted a directory of public worship, right. and they were all able to agree on Westminster Confession Chapter 21, Mm -hmm. uh, which says in Article 1, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Yet I get the sense today that as much consensus as existed in the 1640s among the divines, that language doesn't seem to resonate with folk today, even those who feel a kinship with this document. Right. I think that this is why I think the context of the assembly and uh, the 17th century is so vital to understanding what the divines were trying to say and do, in that we probably read this, and I don't know, maybe it's post-enlightenment, radical individualism, and a host of other reasons, but it perhaps rubs us the wrong way because they say, wait a minute, you're trying to hinder my personal public expression of worship. And so they look at it and as... The answer is yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. The answer is yes. But, you know, within the 17th century, it wasn't viewed as being lording the church's authority over the church, but rather it was protecting the church from abuses in worship. And that's really important, right? Because the archbishop mm -hmm. didn't sympathize with most of the divines, right. or maybe any of them, and he was trying to impose practices on them. If, right. if you look at the vestments that he wore, and mm -hmm. I have seen them, they were as elaborate mm -hmm. as any pontiff, maybe more elaborate than anything you might see, for example, Pope Francis wearing today. And he wanted, and others had wanted, right. ministers yeah. not only to wear formal clothing in the pulpit, for example, to represent their office, for example, a plain black gown, but he wanted them to wear something that indicated more than that, that they were priests. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to impose practices on them as a condition of living in England mm -hmm. or being in the British Isles. Right. And so when they articulated that language, they were really striking a blow for, in a sense, religious liberty, yes. sola scriptura, yeah. and a particular understanding of the second commandment. Absolutely. That's so vital, and that's something I don't hear discussed that much. It's discussed in a few places, but, you know, for example, you know, you bring up the vestments. Uh, another example would be that, you know, you would have to kneel before the Lord's Supper. And a number of uh, Westminster divines and other theologians of the period, and you find this, for example, in uh, William Ames's A Fresh Suit Against Human Ceremonies in God's Worship, is that they said, well, it's not commanded in Scripture anywhere that I have to kneel. And so, for example, you'd have the church authorities saying, if you don't kneel, you can be placed under discipline. If you absent yourself from worship because we require you to kneel and you don't believe that's a scriptural practice, we can fine you, we can imprison you, and we can even, if you violate it multiple times, put you to death. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. And so when you read chapter 21, they're saying, no, this is a blow against oppression, and it's a cry for religious freedom to say that, no, you can't impose these things upon me. The only thing that you have the right to impose upon me is what Scripture says about worship. Scripture gives us the categories and the acceptable practices, nothing more, and ideally, nothing less than what the Scriptures contain. So yeah, it's such so important to see that in context that I think it really, I hope, would give us a much greater appreciation for what the Confession is saying and helping us understand. 
This is a debate that had been going on for about 80 years, Mm -hmm. going back to the 1540s, where people were saying, well, we want you to do this, and you can do it because it's indifferent. And essentially, the Reformed responded by saying, well, if it's indifferent, if it's adiaphora, then I choose not to do it. Right. Right. (laughs) And the authorities would come back and say, well, no, you have to do it. Right. Well, then it's not indifferent anymore. Right. If you have to do it. Yeah. And so really, this gets us back to a really important Reformation truth, Mm -hmm. that Scripture alone is the final sole authority for the Christian faith and for Christian practice, which begins in public worship. Absolutely. It means you can go into worship, whether ideally you're in the 17th century England or in 21st century, you know, US of A or wherever, whatever country you may happen to live in, to say that you can go into worship completely free, knowing that nothing foreign or unbiblical will be imposed upon you. In that sense, it's freeing, knowing that you can worship uh, according to Scripture in the freedom, in the way that God has ordained it, not in the way that somebody may impose authority or false practices upon you. One last thing. Mm -hmm. As you did this book, what one thing did you learn that you didn't know before you did the book? There's a phrase that I use in the book that theologians wrote checks cashed in blood. I was aware of the conflicts in Europe at this period, and in fact, the 17th century was uh, one of the bloodiest because there were so many wars, and that, you know, prior to the 17th century, you had England fighting uh, Spain in the Great Battle of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And I was aware of those things, but I was unaware as to how ingrained these things were in the theological works and the preaching of the period, and that for many Reformed folks, this was the battle of Christ versus Antichrist because you had the Protestant queen who was protecting the Reformed Church battling against the Roman Catholic king of Spain. The Pope ejected himself into this battle by saying that freeing English subjects, saying you no longer owe your allegiance to the queen because she's not only a heretic, but she's the bastard child of Henry VIII. And I am blessing the king of Spain and essentially promising him victory so that when the Spanish Armada was defeated, they saw this as a great vindication of the Protestant faith, of the Reformation. The same could be said about the great powder treason of 1605. A lot of people, I've never read anybody talk about this, but yet it's mentioned regularly in sermons and in theological works that, you know, people will recognize the face of this person from the Occupy Wall Street and all of the the masks that they wear, which comes from the movie V for Vendetta. I've never seen the movie, but I know of the, the, the connection there. And it's funny because these Occupy Wall Street people hail this man, whose name they probably can't name, as an anarchist. And he was nothing of the sort. His name was Guy Fawkes, and it was his plan to blow up Parliament with King James in it so that he could install a Roman Catholic king upon the throne. Because initially, James had expressed some coy interest in being open to Roman Catholicism, but when that didn't occur, uh, many Roman Catholics were still smiting from the defeat in 1588, so they said, okay, let's blow up Parliament. And so he tried and was unsuccessful. They caught him before he could set off some reports, say as many as two to three tons of black powder in the so-called basement of parliament. You know, so here's where you see this. They tortured him to find out who his co-conspirators were. And as a result, they banned Roman Catholics from holding public office from adopting children, from voting in elections, as well as from holding the rank of officer in the military and in the Navy. And those rules weren't revoked until the middle of the 19th century. And so when they identify the Pope as Antichrist, 
we kind of chuckle at that today and we think, oh, how silly of them. And I think it's because we sit in coffee shops and debate theology sometimes as if it were some sort of intellectual exercise. But for 17th century Christians, it was a matter of life and death, national security, politics, and it was just so ingrained into the culture of the day. And so that, I think, was one of the most interesting facts that I kind of became aware of. And yet, for all of the what we might perceive as imbalances of the period, you find the calm, reasoned, peaceful, and sober statements in the Confession of Faith and the catechisms that show you that whatever foibles these people had, to use the old medieval maxim, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. It just massively gave me so much greater appreciation and confidence in these documents as secondary standards to know that they are just brilliant and really deserve careful study because they are so carefully crafted and presented. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.